This is The Rounds Table. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another great week at The Rounds Table. I'm your host, Kieran Quinn, a resident in general and internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And I'm joined this week in our second season of me as host behind the wheel by a familiar face and voice on The Rounds Table, Dr. Paxton Back, who is also finishing his fellowship in general internal medicine at the University of British Columbia. Paxton, welcome back to another season. Thanks, Kieran. I'm happy to be back. So let's jump right in. Take us through and introduce the article that you chose for this week, Paxton. Okay, I'll dive in. So I'm happy to say that I'm back with another major cardiovascular trial this week, not to disappoint you. This week, I decided to kick off the season to talk about the CANVAS trial, or canagliflozin and cardiovascular and renal events in type 2 diabetes. This is a trial that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine this past August. Uh, The primary author is Bruce Neal, and it was led by researchers out at the University of Sydney in Sydney, Australia. Fantastic. We've done some previous work on cardiovascular outcomes and different antihyperglycemic agents, but this is always an intriguing one, and we'll see how it stacks up against the EMPA-REG trial and how it compares. So, Paxton, what is the bottom line for this trial? Well, as you said, Kieran, I was looking forward to this trial because Impareg did uh, create such waves last year. So I suppose the bottom line for the CANVAS trial is that in a trial that's integrating data from two separate randomized control trials, in over 10,000 patients, they did demonstrate a reduction in cardiovascular risk in patients on canagliflozin versus those on placebo. Okay, let's frame it a little more for our listeners, give them a little background. Why is this article important, or rather this trial you know, and the cost of it to be done, why why pursue it? So a couple of reasons, Kieran. Like I said, um, two real things stood out for me. One is just uh, the overall uh, change in what we're seeing in how diabetes trials are being performed. And I think they're really starting to look closer and closer to the more traditional cardiology trials that, that we've um, seen so many of over the past few years. I've definitely heard similar thought processes around my academic circles that the EMPA-REG trial certainly changed practice and was incorporated quickly into the guidelines, so it sounds like this trial supports its findings. Tell us, what was the design of this trial and where did it take place? This trial was actually, as I said, led out of Australia, but it was performed in 600, over 600 centers in uh, 30 countries around the world. So, uh, Kieran, the structure of this paper is a little bit unusual, but I think the bottom line is one that will be pretty recognizable to our listeners. It's actually a composite of two separate randomized control trials. And the reason that that came about is that the original trial uh, was initiated in 2009 uh, before uh, canagliflozin was actually ever uh, approved by the FDA. Um, In 2013, when the first approval of the compound by the FDA occurred, they made an unusual decision to actually unmask the interim cardiovascular data as a part of the regulatory filing documents. This meant that they couldn't really continue on with this trial, even though it had yet to reach uh, the pre-specified outcome. So what they did instead was actually enrolled a second uh, very similar population in a very similar but not exactly the same trial model. And then once they did end up reaching their pre-specified outcome, they combined all that data together to give us this trial. As I said, it was led out of uh, Sydney, Australia, but the trial occurred in over 600 centers in approximately 30 countries across the world, and it had just over 10,000 patients enrolled. So you said it was similar, two similar but separate trials, one on the back of the other. Who were the patients in these? Were they the same between the two trials, roughly, or were they uh, were there some important differences? 
Yeah, so the enrollment criteria in the patient population was essentially identical. There was some nuances with the actual study protocol itself and some of the outcome measurements that were different, and I can get into that shortly. But the key inclusion and exclusion criteria for the patients was pretty similar, and that's patients with established type 2 diabetes diagnosed by an A1C over 7, and they needed to have either uh, be 30 years old with a history of symptomatic atherosclerotic disease or 50 years old with a minimum of two risk factors. Really, the only key exclusion criteria involved in these studies was a GFR over 30, so they, they're not advanced chronic kidney disease. Right, so they're really looking at higher risk cardiovascular disease patients or those who are at very high risk of developing them to target their intervention. So take us through what they did. It sounds like it's a randomized trial. It's probably fairly simple, but just for our listeners' sake, how did they give them canagliflozin? Yeah, so as I said, there's a couple nuances to this. It, it is a randomized control trial. It does follow all of the basic rules that we're all fairly familiar with in terms of randomization and intention to treat, etc. Um, the intervention in these trials was the drug canagliflozin. Um, but as I mentioned, Canvas versus Canvas R did this in a slightly different way. So in Canvas, the original trial that ran from 2009 to 2013, patients were randomized in a one-to-one-to-one ratio between placebo versus canagliflozin at 300 milligrams daily versus canagliflozin at 100 milligrams daily. That was, as I said, about 5,000 patients. And in that trial, they actually followed them for nearly 300 weeks, so a little over median of uh, 295 weeks. In Canvas R, the second iteration of this trial, the randomization was slightly different in that patients were either randomized to 100 milligrams of canagliflozin versus placebo, with the option of having their dose increased at 13 weeks. And to be honest, not quite clear considering it's a blinded trial who makes the decision on whether their dose goes up at 13 weeks or not. But I think approximately two thirds of them ended up having that dose increase um, made. Hmm. Yeah, that is a bit odd, so to speak. But I, whether it's an overall threat to the validity of the findings, I guess we can bring we can discuss that in our limitations. But just to keep things moving here, what was the primary outcome uh, that they were looking at and any important secondary outcomes? Yeah, so again, this is a bit of an interesting twist with this trial. The primary outcome is one that I think that is very, very standard, and that's a composite of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal strokes. That's a pretty traditional composite outcome for this type of trial. In terms of secondary outcomes, they did what's called um, pre-specified hypothesis testing sequence. So what that means is they, they laid out their secondary outcomes along an algorithm. And uh, if the first outcome achieved statistical significance, they would then move on to the second one and so on and so forth until one of them does not achieve statistical significance. And from then on, they would not perform any further statistical analyses beyond that. And this is a way for controlling for the number of analyses that they're performing just to avoid random positive outcomes. What that does mean is that Anything beyond that breakpoint is considered simply exploratory data. And, and did they ordered these secondary outcome analyses in a particular hierarchy of importance or, or probability? Is that, I would assume, if they're wanting to try to maximize the number of findings that they achieve? Yeah, yes, Kieran. They did um, publish their sort of hierarchy of these secondary outcomes, and it began with cardiovascular death and then moved on to outcomes that they considered lesser and lesser importance. All right, great. I think I have a pretty clear idea. You take a bunch of moderate to high-risk individuals with diabetes at risk of developing cardiovascular disease. You randomize them to canagliflozin. There's a small point about dose escalation, whether that's significant or not. And then you look at, you follow them for roughly five years and 
see what happens as far as cardiovascular outcomes. So tell us what actually happened. Um, yep, Kieran, that pretty much captures it. Although the one other comment that I will make is that, again, as a difference between Canvas and Canvas R, the follow-up in Canvas R was actually only just a little over two years, the mean follow-up. So again, another difference between the two trials. But that being said, when they did look at all their outcomes, they first report sort of those classic surrogate outcomes that we're looking for because they look good. They show a drop in A1C of about 0.5% for patients on canagliflozin. They show a drop in body weight of about a kilo and a half, which we know is, is seen with the SGLT2 inhibitors. They show a drop in blood pressure of about four point systolic and about one and a half point diastolic. So we see sort of those surrogate outcomes moving in the direction that we would expect. But more importantly, if we move on to the actual primary outcome itself, they do show a benefit to canagliflozin compared to placebo in that composite outcome. So in patients on placebo, there's about 31.5 events per thousand patient years. And in patients on canagliflozin, that was 26.9. Just to translate that a little bit, that hazard ratio for those who can who interpret that in that way, the hazard ratio was 0.86. And then for you and I, the number needed to treat was approximately 200 patients per year. Okay. Any other findings, safety efficacy outcomes that you wanted to discuss? Yeah, so as I mentioned, so when they tried to dive into these secondary outcomes, they actually unfortunately didn't achieve statistical significance with the very first secondary outcome, and that was cardiovascular mortality. Therefore, um, by their pre-specified sequence, uh, everything else became exploratory after that. In spite of that, they couldn't help but talk a little bit about the renal data. And this was, again, one of those differences between Canvas and Canvas R is they did put a little bit more attention to renal outcomes. And they do suggest that there's less progression of albuminuria in patients on canagliflozin. They say there's more regression of albuminuria in patients on canagliflozin. And they do note a difference in the composite outcome of sustained drop in GFR, need for renal replacement therapy, or death from renal causes. Again, none of that is necessarily meaningful. This is all exploratory, but we are seeing um, some signal there in terms of the, uh, the, the renal effects. Hmm. Paxson, any limitations you wanted to discuss? Uh, just, be- just before limitations, I'll just mention a couple of the adverse effects because we do know that SGLT2 inhibitors do come with some downsides. They did have an increase in genital urinary infections, volume depletion, diuresis effects, all of those things that we know come with the SGLT2s. A couple interesting twists here is one, a higher rate of overall fractures. Uh, that was actually seen in one of the subgroups and not the other subgroups, so hard to see what to make of that. And they also notice an increase in amputations, sort of forefoot and midfoot amputations with number needed to harm of about 330 a year. So really not consistent with anything else we know about SGLT2 inhibitors. Hard to come up with a physiologic explanation for that. So it's where no one's really sure what to make of the amputation signal, I think. But it does bear noting. Yeah, absolutely. It is a bit odd for sure, but there it is. Yeah. Uh, in terms of limitations, I think that I've sort of alluded to some of them already. There are some idiosyncrasies to this trial that I've actually never seen anything quite like it before. That includes the combination of the two trials with you know different timelines and slightly different study protocols. It does include the reporting of what they've already identified as non-statistical data, which, as you mentioned, is sort of a little bit counterintuitive. A few other things to mention, there was a fairly high discontinuation rate. 30% of patients did come off of canagliflozin. Um, 30% of patients came off placebo as well, but a fairly high study dropout rate, even though follow-up was still good. Yeah, you know, Paxton, I think the more and more I learn about the practicalities of running a randomized control trial, of which, by the way, I have yet to do my own independently, I learn that there has to be some very difficult practical decisions made, and sometimes 
cost is a huge driver of these very, very expensive trials. And so, you know, even though they're not the perfect trial in the end, we have to sort of evaluate them on the benefits and the limitations that they have. What, what do you think uh, overall? Is this a, a valid trial that should be taken away and, and believe or should we really question the validity of their findings? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Kira. And I think we're always striving for perfection in trials. And unfortunately, it's just not what we have most of the time. It is what it is. And so we have to decide what to make of it. So when I look at this trial, you know, it is, on the one hand, somewhat reassuring to me that it does sort of echo some of those same findings that we saw in Emberreg. So that, to me, makes me feel a little bit more confident that this is a real observation and not just something that happened to come out in that initial trial. A few questions still are outstanding to me um, when you look at these differences. So in Empereg, we did see a statistically significant difference in cardiovascular outcome, which we're not seeing in this trial. I don't know if that's just the trial itself uh, or this population, or whether it's a drug-specific thing, or whether it might have to do with, as we mentioned at the beginning, that Empereg had patients that had more established cardiovascular disease, so maybe they're just sicker and allowing us to see the benefit. Likewise, in terms of the amputations, that's never something that we've seen in any other SGLT2 trial. So I don't know if that is an acanaglyphalism specific effect or whether this is just, again, some kind of idiosyncrasy with this trial that we're not quite grasping. Overall, I think that I am reassured that there is some cardiovascular benefit to these medications. But the last thing I'll say is I don't know whether this has to do with some intrinsic effect of the SGLT2 inhibitors or some effect of the SGLT2 receptor, or whether it's simply the fact that, you know, we have one pill here that lowers blood pressure, that lowers our blood sugar, that has this associated diuresis with it. Uh, you know, I couldn't tell you for sure that putting somebody on a DPP-4, for instance, along with any hypertension medication wouldn't have the same outcomes. So that still kicks around in my head. But I guess the bottom line here is that I'm reassured that, that we're seeing some consistency between these trials. Great. Thanks, Paxson, for that excellent choice and article. Let's move on. Um, I'm going to talk to you about also another cardiology trial. I couldn't help myself uh, knowing that you were coming on the show. And it's looking at the anti-inflammatory effects of an antibody called canakinumab in reducing atherosclerotic disease. This was published by first author Reidker in the New England Journal of Medicine just last week in August of 2017. Oh, I think we closed out last season with a cardiovascular trial and a biologic on evolocumab, so I'm very excited to see where you go with this one. Yeah, this is not far off. Let me tell you about the bottom line for this particular trial. It was a randomized double-blind trial of canakinumab, which is a therapeutic monoclonal antibody against interleukin-1-beta uh, with just over 10,000 patients who had prior myocardial infarction, as well as evidence of ongoing inflammation with a high sensitivity C-reactive protein above 2 milligrams or more. And after they followed these individuals for four years, they found that those who were treated with canakinumab had about a 15% risk reduction in non-fatal myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke, or cardiovascular death when you compared to placebo. However, this finding was counterbalanced by a higher rate of fatal infection in sepsis. I think the most important thing is that these findings were found to be independent of lipid lowering, thus supporting the overall anti-inflammatory hypothesis in therapies for reducing atherosclerotic disease. So this was your typical double-blinded randomized control trial. 
It was industry sponsored by Novartis, but as I think you know, most people realize these days, these big clinical trials require lots of funding behind them. And I think we're increasingly improving at maintaining independence, but it's still important to know that it's an industry-sponsored trial. Uh, it took place in 39 countries across the world between April of 2011 and June of 2017. The primary author is based at Brigham and Women's College in Boston in the United States. Ah, okay. So tell me then a little bit more about the patients that we're, we're talking about in this study and, and who this applies to. Who do they enroll? So it's fairly simple and straightforward inclusion and exclusion criteria, which I always like to see in a trial. Basically, you were included in the trial if you had a history of a myocardial infarction. And on top of that, when they measured your CRP in your blood, it was uh, greater than two milligrams uh, or more per, per liter, despite the use of a variety of aggressive secondary prevention strategies and medications. So there was no exclusions as to being on any kind of particular medication. You were excluded uh, more about the concerns around side effects of the medication in that if you had a history of chronic or recurrent infections, you were suspected or known to have an immunocompromised state, you had a history of or you were very high risk for developing tuberculosis or you had HIV or other systemic or anti-inflammatory treatments, you were excluded. You were also excluded if you had known prior cancer and those were the main inclusion and exclusion criteria. Your average patient was about a 61-year-old gentleman who had a prior ST elevation MI and had concurrent diabetes or hypertension, had undergone PCI for his acute coronary syndrome, and he was on really on appropriate secondary preventative medications, including 90% of the population was on a statin. Okay, so we're looking at a fairly straightforward secondary prevention trial here with patients who, uh, by your estimation, are, are on pretty good cocktail of medications already? The medications that I, as a simple gen internist, would make sure that they're on, and I would assume most good cardiologists would put them on as well. Okay, fantastic. And, and now let's dig down into it. What is the primary outcome that they're looking at? So this was a time-to-event analysis of non-fatal myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke, or cardiovascular death. The same composite outcome as we saw in the CANVAS trial and CANVAS R trial that we just talked about as the first article on this episode. Uh, so as you mentioned, a pretty common primary outcome. Absolutely. I think a fairly standard cardiovascular outcome. Secondary outcomes that they looked at were limited. They really just looked at hospitalization for unstable angina that ultimately led to urgent revascularization. So that's sort of an important caveat. They also included that as a composite with their primary outcome, all as one sort of overall outcome. And then they also looked at death from any cause. And ultimately, what they ended up doing was using a, you know, a central computer system, as good trials do for randomization. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one ratio to receive placebo, canakinumab, at a dose of uh, 150 or 300 milligrams. Um, and then what happened was after the enrollment of 741 patients, they included a 50 milligram dose of canakinumab at the request of the re regulatory agency. And so then they adjusted the randomization ratio to make a final randomized ratio of 1.5 in the placebo to 1 to 1 to 1 in the other three doses of canakinumab. Okay. So now you mentioned at the beginning that they did report a difference in this trial. Um, unpack that for us a little bit and tell us about the main findings. Yeah. So overall, the event rate in their baseline population was about 20% of the individuals experienced one of the primary outcome composites at five years. So... That's a fairly standard and consistent cardiovascular outcome event rate 
when you're following this many people for five years. So that frames the population for you that they're not a major outlier. And so if you followed 100 individuals for one year within this trial, about five of them would experience one non-fatal myocardial infarction, non-fatal stroke, or cardiovascular death. And that was in the placebo group. But if you took canakinumab, that was reduced to four of 100 individuals over one year. There was no dose-dependent effect above 150 milligrams. And the reason I focused on the one-year time frame was that was really where the effects started to become apparent and the curve started to separate between the two groups and arms in the trial. Ultimately, these findings, this, this reduction, was driven by myocardial infarction and revascularization and not death. So really, that's what the effects of this canakinumab are is in the reduction of MI and revascularization, not death. The other way to report that, if you're looking at hazard ratios, in the 150 milligram group, it was 0.85 and 0.86 in the 300 milligram group. And that was statistically significant compared to placebo. So ultimately, that works out to a number needed to treat of about 56 individuals over the time frame of just over three and a half years, which is what they found in the trial. These findings were mainly driven by myocardial infarction and revascularization and not driven by cardiovascular death. So it's not a mortality finding, but it still is, I think, an important cardiovascular finding. However, as I mentioned in the bottom line at the beginning, the safety outcomes that they looked at were concerning. So despite the fact that the event rates and the safety outcomes were low, so for example, we're looking at about 1,000 individuals in one year as opposed to 100 individuals in one year, um, nevertheless, three, three of those people would die of fatal infectious uh, causes or sepsis when treated with canakinumab compared to only sort of two people that would die of the same problem in the placebo group. And they found that neutropenia was more prevalent in treated individuals, and that sort of supports the biological finding and plausibility of the effects of canakinumab that's driving this concerning safety outcome. So probably not surprising considering uh, what we know about the mechanism of action, but those are pretty compelling side effects. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's why I think overall, the reason I didn't cover this trial was because of the impressive finding in cardiovascular risk reduction but more in about the mechanism uh, of the disease and the future potential for targets. Okay, so you've alluded to this a couple of times then. So put this in perspective. What were the unique components of this trial that caught your eye and kind of how does that fit into that structure that you laid out for us earlier? Yeah, so, you know, I think the first thing to say overall, as was with Canvas trial, this trial met all the criteria that we come to expect from a high-quality RCT that makes it and is published in the New England Journal of Medicine. They had appropriate randomization and concealment, adequate sample size, you know, blinding, complete outcome data. They did all the right stuff on your tick box. The, the one thing that kind of raised a question in my mind, though, was they had about 7,000 patients excluded from the trial. And the main reason was because of they didn't have CRP levels that were above that cutoff of two milligrams per liter. So the question I have in my mind is like, so the people that they've included in this trial why are they different than others who are largely the same clinically but don't have the same level of information? So what's driving that inflammation underneath it all? That obviously isn't apparent, nor was a point of interest for the trial design in and of itself, but I found it to be kind of, you know, raised a bit of a question mark in my mind about who are these people that were excluded compared to those that were included. 
just based on the level of inflammation they had going on in their body. Um, that's interesting. So that may be, again, yet another population that we need to, to look more closely at. Exactly. And so, you know, just to bring it all home for our listeners, I think the main interpretation of this trial and the learning points is that it really comes down to the balance between the, the risks and the benefits as far as thinking about applying this to patients in the future. As I mentioned twice now, the real interest from this is, I think, the support towards the inflammation hypothesis of atherosclerosis. And this trial really is targeting individuals who have residual inflammatory risk despite lipid lowering with statins. And we demonstrate here a non-mortality-driven benefit at the cost of fatal infection. The question for me is, what was the severity, so to speak, of the heart attacks that the individuals suffered? And I think that's really how you understand the balance of the risks and benefits and make a decision about whether you might use this, which isn't reported in this trial. But if you're trying to balance that against the risk of fatal infection, I really think, you know, you got to be reducing large infarcts and making huge impacts on patients' quality of life from the sequelae of a heart attack rather than just a small heart attack who underwent revascularization uh, for this medication. Yeah, I, I mean, I have to say, I agree with you, Kira. I find this a totally fascinating trial in terms of talking about that fundamental physiology and, and what's actually driving this heart disease. But for all of the reasons that you've already identified, I can't see this changing the way that I practice. And we haven't even talked at all about the cost of this medication yet either, which I can't imagine is insignificant. No, it's so, I mean, it's not available in Canada, but in the United States, it's about $200,000 US per year for one patient as it's administered every three months and it's an antibody. So it's expensive stuff. So I, I don't think you're going to see this uh, in prime time in any near future. Well, Paxson, thanks for a great show. Let's get on to the good stuff segment. My favorite part of the show, as you know, where we're talking about what we're reading about. What's catching your eye this week? Oh, thanks, Kieran. I'm glad to be back on the good stuff. Um, I was reading an interesting article just the other day on NPR that was interviewing uh, one Dr. Herschel Jick. Now, Many of you likely don't recognize this name, but he is unfortunately somewhat of a major cog in how we ended up getting to where we're at currently in terms of a prescription opioid crisis. Dr. Jick wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1980 that was no more than 100 words long at the time. Uh, he simply reported that in his experience among just over 12,000 patients that they had seen in hospital receiving narcotics, only four cases appeared to develop any uh, documented addiction in patients who had no previous history of addiction. Uh, this was an observation. He wrote it up, like I said, in a one-paragraph letter to the New England Journal. Uh, it was published and um, has been referenced extensively since then as evidence that prescription opioids are not addictive and uh, do not lead to addiction. This led to a huge pharma campaign of the 90s. And, and unfortunately, as, as you and I now know, the uh, prescription opioid epidemic that we're in today. So this, this article uh, on NPR actually went back and found Dr. Jick and interviewed him and just discussed with him his thoughts on how his letter has been misrepresented. And uh, he's, he expresses that he's, he's quite sad kind of about where it's led us to be. Obviously, his his data was taken very much out of context, but his conclusion is that if he knew then what he knew now, he never would have published it, and it wasn't worth it for his career. So a bit of a melancholy article highlighting how his article was taken out of context to, to really drive a lot of the prescription, uh, uh, the opioid prescription that we saw through the 90s. And so uh, an interesting kind of historical read. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, medicine and science are 
bound to make observations and we try to disseminate those observations to others to help inform medical research and practice. And sometimes, you know, others use those or take them out of context, as you said, uh, and it has unfortunate consequences. Interesting that you mentioned this because uh, our very own Dr. David Yerling here in Toronto published a study that looked at that letter and the citation telephone tag that came after it. And the paper that he published, which we'll post on our website if you're interested, was just to look at how often that letter has been cited. So thanks for sharing that with us, Paxton. I found a piece uh, also off of NPR this last couple of weeks that's a little bit more lighthearted, but it's around the idea that money can't buy happiness, right? And some researchers actually beg to differ, but it just depends on how you spend your money. So basically what they found was, um, it was a study actually out of Vancouver, right in your hometown there. And they gave people $40 for a weekend. They gave, you know, there's two groups and they said, spend your money this way. One way you got to spend it on time-saving services. And another one said, you have to spend it on, on goods. So lots of people in the time savings uh, group, they spent it on house cleaners or lawn care or grocery delivery. Um, and the people who spent the money on material purchases bought, you know, things like shirts and uh, makeup and, you know, stuff like that. And ultimately, when they asked them sort of, you know, how do you rate your happiness consistently, people who spent money on time saving services rated their, themselves as happier. So, hey, what do you know? Take the limited money that you and I have and spend it on dry cleaning and grocery delivery as opposed to buying that new 50-inch TV. What do you think, Paxton? I have to tell you, Kieran, that article speaks to me. I think my house cleaner is by far the highest value for dollar out of about anything that I uh, purchase these days. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, Paxton, thanks for another great week. It's great to have you back on the season and the show as always. We really appreciate you, you giving up your very valuable time, and we look forward to having you back sometime soon. Oh, fantastic. Thanks a lot, Kieran. That was great. Um, uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Till next time. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Roundtable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Roundtable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us.